Um, well, for those of you who were not at my yesterday seminar, the breakout seminar, that was probably my most important seminar so far. I'd recommend you listen to that. Um, and uh, we talked about the real, real uh, meal deal in terms of witnessing and real, and really in terms of uh, coming in touch with the heart of God and being effective in witness. And that is to give the heart to God. And you don't have to know much scripture. I mean, they're going to hate me at Army for this, but you don't really have to know much scripture if you've given your heart to God. I mean, you'll want to know more scripture if you do that. But even just a little bit will totally make you a powerful witness. Let me give you an example. My little girl, she uh, really loves Jesus, and she only knew one text. And the text was, do not rebel against the Lord. So she followed me around the house, and she kept saying that all day. <laughs> Do not rebel against the Lord. It was the most convicting day probably at our house in a long time. When I went to the refrigerator, do not rebel against the Lord. Sitting by the television, do not rebel against the Lord. Going down the road, tempted to go a little faster to get there fat, you know, more quickly. Do not rebel against the Lord. And I'll tell you what, I still remember it. It was a powerful message. Do not rebel against the Lord. Six words. I think it was Martin Luther who said just one little word will slay the devil. Right? Maybe just help. <laughs> Peter said, help me, Lord. I'm sinking. Help. So, you know, even if, you, if you're connected to God in heart, um, you can say one word and people will respond. Uh, to the best. I remember a story of, a, of another time in communism in uh, Romania where they had told everyone they couldn't have God and couldn't have religion and they were making it very clear that nobody could worship and this and that and they went on one of the holy days of the church to give a two hour talk why God didn't exist and then after that they asked the orthodox priest to come up even though I'm no friend of how the Orthodox have treated some other groups, but this was the Christian representative, and he got up, and he only said three words. Christ is risen. And when he said that, everybody went crazy clapping. Only three words. Christ is risen. The central, pivotal message of Scripture in terms of the miracle of the resurrection. Amen? So, Let's put it this way. Yesterday in our little seminar on the heart, we recognized that you can have great eloquence, you can have very connected words, and you can, have, you can be a good, a good homiletician, but if you're not connected at heart with the Lord, it does not matter. You're not going to have much success at all because God looks on the heart and man looks on the outward appearance. Okay, so having said that now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try and do our best, right, in preaching. And I think there needs to be a real revival of preaching today. And I want to, in this seminar, inspire you, but also teach you some practical things. Can I hear an amen from Dave in the back there? Yes, Dave and the Army Group are really into not so much inspiration for you folks as perspiration. And he wants you to work. All right? And enjoy it. Okay, well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for these few moments that you've granted us on earth 
And then the very few moments inside those few moments here at Army, that's really nothing in terms of eternity. And yet you can make it everything in terms of eternity if we give you our hearts and our lives. We could make a decision here that would cause us to, to, to live eternity. We could learn things here that could cause others to live throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. So please help it to happen. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of my favorite non-Adventist preachers, and I don't listen so much to that, but one of my favorite is Martin Lloyd-Jones, the late Martin Lloyd-Jones. and He was a physician first, and then he turned to being a preacher. He was actually an excellent physician. He was the physician for the crown. Not actually the crown, the thing right under the crown, which was the queen. And... He was, he was just a, a, a wonderful physician, uh, physician turned homiletician, and he went about ministry as he had medicine in a comprehensive, logical fashion. In fact, he still kept his script pad, and after church, people would come to his office, and he would write out a script from the Holy Scriptures to them. This is what I want you to do. This is your treatment. And he wrote a, a timeless book called Spiritual Depression. If you ever want to learn something about uh, how the Psalms deal with depression, that's it, and I wish I could talk about that the whole hour, and I could, but it wouldn't match the title on the tape, so we better not. So, he had this book, and I was reading his autobiography, um, and this is what he said about preaching. We're living in an age which is questioning or querying everything, and among those things that it is questioning is the place and value and purpose of preaching. In increasing numbers, people seem to be depreciating the value of preaching, and they're turning more and more to singing of various kinds and types, accompanying with various types of instruments. So he said, look, this is, uh, this is what's happening. They're going back, he continues, to dramatic representations of recitals or recitals of Scripture. And some are even going back to dancing and various other forms of external manifestation of the act of worship. And all this is having the effect of depreciating the place and value of preaching. So he's saying, now this was written back in the, uh, uh, during his lifetime. It would be sometime right after World War II, maybe, uh, um, you know, the 60s was when he retired. So this would have been back then. And he was concerned then. Wow. He was concerned. He goes on. We now know that the Reformation, now we know that the Reformation, even before you come to the particular Puritan emphasis, swept away all such things. He said, when the Reformation came, no dancing, none of this stuff, no dramatic presentation, swept it all away. It swept away the medieval mystery plays. You may wonder, why is it that some churches are getting into passion plays? Why is it that they're getting into all these representations? You know what? They weren't the first ones to get into it. The first ones to get into that was the Catholic Church. And the Reformation swept all that away. Dramatic performances in the church. The Reformation got rid of all that. And it's very sad to observe, he continues, that people who claim to have an unusual degree of spirituality should be trying to lead us back to that which the Reformers saw so clearly had been concealing the gospel and truth from the people. Now, how many of you think this sounds up to date? Even today, there's more and more of that. He continues, if you mime the scriptures or give a dramatic representation of them, you are distracting the attention of the people from the truth as compared in the scriptures. 
Whereas preaching is essentially concerned with bringing out the truth of the scriptures. I don't know about you, but when I read that, first time I said, man, this guy's like alive today. He's saying we need to get back to preaching the word, right? And then he says he makes it plain as to where it all came from. Under Roman Catholicism, preaching had been at such a discount, in other words, not done much, it was marked down, that there were very few preachers left in this country, and he lived in England. All the emphasis was put on the sacraments, and on the priests, and on various things which I have referred to, plays, etc. Kind of like the emergent church movement today is going back to all these things that supposedly are uh, the outer manifestations, right? I don't think we needed the emergent church because it's really the submergent church. What we really need is the detergent church. Can I have an amen out there? <laughs> what we need is the Daniel 8, 14 movement where the cleansing of the sanctuary comes down to the cleansing of our hearts, amen. right? That's really what we need. So he then goes on in his book to say that what really brings revival, and how many think that there was one thing we could have here, uh, oh Lord, will you not revive your people that we may rejoice in you, amen? If there was one thing we need, it's revival. And throughout history, most of the times, in fact, every time he suggests, it's been brought about by preaching. But not just preaching, preaching of people whose hearts have really been given to the Lord like we saw yesterday. John Wycliffe, the Morning Star of the Reformation, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox. These men were first and foremost regular preachers and great preachers. Some of them were even attorneys, but that had nothing to do with it. You can think of John Knox. It did actually have something to do with it. You'll see in a minute. You'll see in a minute. In Scotland, for a moment, you can't think of that Reformation in Scotland for a moment without thinking of his great preaching and the way Mary, Queen of Scots, would tremble as she listened to him. She never heard the Bible. She always just had the outward manifestations, right? She was more afraid of his preaching than the troops which the English sent to take her captive. And the same was true of Zwingli, the great reformer in Switzerland. And in this country, he again speaking of England, Hugh Latimer was first and foremost a great and popular preacher. All these men claimed... And all who believe in the supremacy of preaching have always claimed that this was the Lord's method of teaching the truth. So if you want to teach, preach. Someone told me yesterday, <laughs> preaching is not really teaching people. Oh, yes, it is. If you have a church and you're preaching the right way and showing them how you're preaching as you preach, you're teaching them and inspiring them at the same time. <laughs> you don't have to be boring to be preaching. Amen. You don't have to do that, you know. Uh, right. So, all these men claimed, and all believe in that. They believed preaching was the Lord's method. The Lord was a preacher. John the Baptist was a preacher. Peter was a preacher. Paul was a preacher. And you should be preachers. And by the way, uh, my wife's the biggest preacher in my family. Have you seen her walking around with all those kids? How many think that's a sermon right there? I'm a sideshow. She is actually a preacher, and she's surrounded by four living creatures. Amen? <laughs> so, Martin Lloyd-Jones lived over there in England, and the Anglicans 
The Anglican church is where he was, and he didn't have much good to say about the Anglicans, although he was one, in terms of preaching. The Anglican view of preaching is seen in this fact, that in the Book of Common Prayer, no sermon is required for the morning and evening prayers. And he said, that's terrible. You've got to have a sermon in the morning and the evening. You know, you know what was it? John Calvin preached five times a day, every day, and everybody had to come. All the leaders of the society had to come. <laughs> Can I hear an Amen. It was like, arm me all day, all week. When my great-grandfather was a preacher, an evangelist for the Adventist movement, he would be in a place for nine months for his evangelistic series, and he would preach five times a week, in morning and in the evening. And when he left, there were churches, not just leftover evangelistic flyers. Amen? Amen. Secondly, Queen Elizabeth and her bishops came out very strongly against what was called prophesying. Prophesying was to preach. That was their word for it, which was essentially a preaching occasion. That's what the, uh, the Puritans called it. And the queen and the bishops, with few exceptions, were opposed to this. And finally, in 1576, they put an end to it. They said, no more of that prophesying. No more preaching. People are getting too inspired, fired up. We need to go back to just teaching. No more inspiration. Just keep it calm, because we want, we want, we don't want the saints to be in circulation. Do you know, do you know what Oliver Cromwell said one day? They were wondering where they'd get enough silver to run the kingdom. And he said, well, let's get the saints in circulation. And they melted down all the statues of the saints. Can I have an amen out there? But how many of you think, how many of you think that God wants to get you, his saints, in circulation by a meltdown? Right? Amen. Amen. So they put an end to prophesying. They discouraged the private reading of scriptures. These were the Anglicans, supposedly Protestants. <laughs> kind of weak Protestants, you ask me. Instead, they proposed the reading of homilies, which were prepared sermons on various subjects. In other words, we'll send you the sermons, you just read them. That's why here at Arm, me, and you, you need to know how to preach your own sermon. I might have died on him. I have to do a little more inspiration instead of teaching here. The Puritans and preaching, to them, preaching was the central and most important thing of all. Amen. We need to be preaching because that's when they knew people were learning. The Puritans held that the highest supreme office and authority of the pastor is to preach the gospel solemnly and publicly to the congregation by interpreting the word of God and applying the same by exhortations and reproof unto them. So preach it. In other words, show what it means and then apply it. <laughs> That's really what Bible study is supposed to do. Isn't that right? And sermons as well. So their top priorities in the Puritan movement, were preaching the word, administering the sacraments, baptism, Lord's Supper, and exercising church discipline. How many think that's a top priority for people today? Oh no, haven't even heard of that. What does that mean? We need to look it up. <laughs> so how did they train preachers? A number of preachers and others would come together. Sometimes the public were allowed to listen. Each preacher was given the same text and each one had to expound the same text. The younger preachers came first, and there might be four or five men preaching on the same text, and then the older ones would come in, make the younger ones feel sad about what they'd said. Can I hear an amen? I don't know if the older ones were trying to get some hints. I hope not, but 
they would come in and then it would just deepen and grow and people would understand that text. And the real function of preaching was not to give information. And this is the important part of inspiration. It was to give heat, to give it life, to give power, to bring it home to the hearers. Preacher is not in the pulpit merely to give knowledge and information. He's to inspire them, enthuse them. You know what the word enthuse means? In means in. Thu is from theos, means God. In other words, if his heart is right, like we learned yesterday in the heart thing, then their hearts will be impacted, and the heart of God will impact him, and his heart will impact others, and there will be one heartbeat from heaven to earth. And so this was the whole idea. Then they were to be sent out glorying, not in the preacher, not in the church, not in the dresses they saw that day, not in anything else but the what? The Spirit. So, how many can see that Martin Lloyd was calling for a, a, a return to sound simple, not simplistic, but simple biblical preaching? Now, this guy as well, giving you two little book reports and then giving you seven practical principles that could be applied by those of you who are here for the practical principles. <laughs> Amen? But you need to understand why those are so important. This guy, uh, Dr. Gordon, this guy had terminal, or it appeared to be terminal cancer. And he said, before I die, I got to write a book about preaching. His biggest concern was, before he died, to tell people what he thought about preaching. And he's about ready to die. He has cancer. He's getting chemotherapy treatments while he wrote this book. This is the kind of book I like to read. It is better, God says, to go to the house of mourning than the house of mirth, because the living will take it to heart. Isn't that right? That's right, isn't it? It's 100% right. So this guy's about to die. And this is like his, his last words he's writing. He says, I'm just going to let it all out because I'm going to be dead. In my opinion, less than 30% of those who are ordained to the Christian ministry can preach even a mediocre sermon, he begins. As starving children in Manila sift through the landfill for food, Christians in many churches today have never experienced genuine soul-nourishing preaching, and so they just pick away at what's available to them, trying to find a morsel of spiritual sustenance or palpable counsel here or there. So he pictures the church today as people like in some kind of landfill looking for something. Please just give me one piece. He, by the way, that's why he says the emergent church is developed. No good preaching. I routinely found myself asking my wife, what was that sermon about? To which she's responded, I'm not really sure. <laughs> I would guess that of the sermons I've heard in the last 25 years, this guy is a teacher of preachers and he's heard all kinds of preachers. He's like, listen to more sermons than they're on audio verse times 10. In the last 25 years, 15% had a discernible point. Of those 15%, I'd say 10% demonstrated based the point on a text from the Bible. That is, there was no competent effort made to persuade the hearer that God's word required a particular thing. It was simply asserted. How many of you can see something there that you need to bring out in terms of practically? Such sermons, he continues, he's about ready to die, <laughs> are religiously useless 
If the hearer's duty is listening to a sermon to be willing to submit one's will to God's will, then one can only do this if the preacher does his duty by demonstrating that what he's saying is God's will. And we can see a little hint there about how a Bible study or a sermon should be. You can be able to show that. There is no religious use to a sermon that merely discloses the minister's opinion, but does not disclose the opinion of God. We don't need amazing opinions. We need amazing facts. Can you say amen to that? <laughs> so, why has this happened? We almost start to the practical section, and how, who can say amen? Amen. <laughs> amen. My supporters are here. A culture, the suits, a culture formerly dominated. This is why he says what's happening. He says, okay, you want to know why it is that there's a problem with preaching today? Now, this gets close to home because I'm from a Christian media ministry. <laughs> My job could be on the line right now, but I am not talking here personally. I'm just reading what some professor had to say. Can you say amen to that? So my job's not in jeopardy, his is. <laughs> but let's read what he had to say. A culture formerly dominated by language, that's reading and writing, has become a culture dominated by images, moving images. Now we got iPhones where you can just talk to people and see them. <laughs> Even though it says Macintosh on the phones, it's not a good thing. I say that with my last name being Macintosh. That was hard for me to say, all right? Library of Congress... Librarian of Congress Daniel Burston had this to say, photography, photography was destined soon to give printed matter itself a secondary role. And that's what's been happening. The average adult American reads fewer than nine books and spends 17 times as much time watching television as reading, including all magazines and newspapers. A Christian should be able to say, absolutely not. I read 66 books this year. Amen. Can I hear an amen there? Amen. 66 books. Well, can you see that? Average person is like, duh. <laughs> they are not reading. In the last two decades, 82 to 2002, the study was done, there has been a 10% decline in literacy among adults in the United States. People are just like, I don't know how to read that. And it's getting more and more. By the way, how many of you have gone to Bible studies and taught people how to read? And God taught them how to read because they wanted to know the truth. Amen. Yeah. A-literacy is advancing at a slow, steady, albeit disconcerting rate. What's A-literacy? That's the ability to read, but then the desire not to. Oh, I'll just get the DVD and watch the sermon on DVD <laughs> instead of reading about it. I'm not trying with my language to pick out any particular part of the country because I don't know where that's from. But I'm just <laughs> changing it. And so his book title was Johnny Can't Read, Johnny Can't Write, Therefore Johnny Can't Preach. <laughs> so look, the basic elements of being able to preach or teach is being able to read. <sighs> now, when people do read today, they read almost exclusively for information or content. They almost never read for pleasure obtained by reading an author whose command of language is exceptional. Like, for instance, Ellen White. Have you read her recently? You read her and you just kind of go, whoa! And then the first paragraph gets you the top of it, and then there's a point, 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 then summary. You go, whoa, beautiful! Do you ever do that? 
And then you say to your wife, some of you shouldn't even been thinking about wives, but some of you do, or your friend, you say, what? Let me read this to you. Isn't it beautiful, right? Do you do that with like tweet messages? Listen to this beautiful tweet. No, it's a tweet. <laughs> Culturally then, we're no longer careful, he considers, close readers of text, sacred or secular. We scan for information, but we do not appreciate literary craftsmanship. We don't appreciate it. In fact, sometimes we depreciate it. And our inability to read text is a direct result. By the way, he now studies the media. That's what he does. He's a homiletician that's now studying the media and seeing what it's doing to preaching. Our inability to read text is a direct result of the presence of electronic media. You go down the street. I was down the street the other day. I was driving by this little bus stop. It wasn't little. It had a big, long bus. In fact, it was the longest bus I ever seen in my whole life. It was like a train, but it was a bus. I was going, how's that thing going to turn the corner? And everybody was sitting there waiting for that bus, and they all were, like, texting, and everybody, they were just all, you know, immediately mediatized. Now, this is what he says about media. Now, this is, was convicting to me. As a medium, reading cultivates a patient, lengthy attention span, whereas television is a medium for the impatient. One is therefore suited to what is significant, and the other merely to what is insignificant. Now that's like stepping on some toes here, right? We got a television camera right here, and his brother's like nodding. I hope he's not nodding off, I hope he's nodding in. <laughs> a culture is accustomed to commercial interruptions every six or seven minutes. It loses its ability to discuss significant matters because it's lost the patience necessary to consider them. Nothing of public importance can be covered in 10 minutes, even though they say in-depth report. For the next 10 minutes, we'll give you an in-depth look. You can't give anybody an introduction in 10 minutes, much less an in-depth book. I was trying to read about Vietnam the other day, a couple of years ago, <laughs> day was a year, and as I was reading, I read 10 books, and I didn't even feel like I had an introduction. You're going, what's wrong with you? I'm just telling, I'm illustrating the point. Television is in, by the way, we're going to get to some practical points in a minute for those of you who I might lose. Can I hear an amen out there? Television, in contrast to poetry, is essentially trivial. Everything about it is trivial because it's a perfect medium for triviality. Its pictures must move on an average of less than every three seconds if you follow industry standards. It captures best those images that are kinetic and have motion. Might be good with me. Yet, few of the more significant aspects of life involve much motion. Love, humility, faith, repentance, prayer, friendship, worship, affection, fear, hope, self-control. Most of what is significant about life takes place between our ears. Now, how many think this is just an alarming critique? Are you infected at all by electronic media? It's your church. So we're going to show you a clip, thereby clipping your ability to read the Bible. Television, even film, doesn't depict these realities very well. What realities? Significant realities. And it, it, it is as it, at its best with the superficial and the trivial. Our culture has become a television culture, although a larger part of our waking life has been occupied by considering, in other words, by considering what is insignificant. 
or worse, look at this phrase he uses, or worse, by inadequately considering what is significant through an insignificant medium. Ah, oh, man, I'm telling you, that's stepping on some toes. When I read that, I was like, <laughs> oh, man, I could think of things to do that. So then he says, now we're to the practical point. For those of you who are timing this practical application. <laughs> if that was not practical enough, was that practical? Oh, I thought that was practical. So what can be done? Here were the suggestions he made. Now you might want to get out because this is why you come to Army. You're a pen and paper and write this down. Because I don't have any like handy dandy little notes. I came to Army saying, what would the Spirit have me to do? <laughs> Once I got here, actually the pain in my back and neck Kept me up all night, so I worked on different things. Some of these things are hot off the press. Can you hear an amen out there? Yes, yes indeed. <laughs> Suggestions that he made. Number one, learn to read well. In other words, when you can read out loud, read out loud, have family worship in the morning and at noon and at night and have everybody read. Read. If they say, I don't know how to say Nebuchadnezzar, say it again and again until you got it. Nebuchadnezzar, Moshibaset, right? Read the King James Version. It will really make you learn how to read. He set up ambushments. <laughs> don't you love that word? The King James. And so he set up ambushments. <laughs> how else are you going to learn how to read? That's wonderful things, right? Don't read just for information. Learn to speak, not just talk, not just talk. Learn how to speak with cadence, with punch, with pause. Learn how to speak, right? I'm in my AFCO class. I, I have them read all around the class, and then I know what I'm up against. Read out loud, like I said. Have someone critique your messages. That happens to me from time to time. <laughs> Critique them for content. Can I hear an amen out there? <laughs> for logic, for flow. You know, preachers never get critiqued that much except by their parishioners. And by the way, what did I say yesterday in the heart lecture? We should never judge a minister by his sermons, is what Ellen White says. We don't know whether or not they're a good minister by that. It's a heart issue. But that's yesterday. We're now moving on to the preacher himself should be judging what he says because he's representing God and he should be asking other people. So critique your messages for content, for logic, for flow, for unity. If you're writing notes, how many of you are caught up with me? This brother is. Get the notes from him. So content, <laughs> logic, flow, and unity. I'm going on. Learn to write well. You know what it says in this book? We're not writing anymore. We're tweeting. We tweet. I mean, we're bird brains. Tweet, tweet, tweet. Learn how to write. And you know what he says? He says, during the World War II era, the greatest generation, 
all those letters they would write back and forth from the conflict, they couldn't get on the internet, they couldn't talk on the phone. They had to write their love for one another. And it was beautiful to read, and now they buy books. And they go, wow, that's eloquent. But that's like Johnny down the street, the trash man. He can write well, and so can the president. So just take the opportunity to write. Write personal notes. He suggests during your devotional time, when the Holy Spirit impresses you about someone else, write a note to them during your devotional time. Write articles. And he says, it doesn't matter if they're published or not. Just write them. Write about your devotional experience. Write out your prayers. How many think this would be good? Because then you're... Look, what he's saying is, before you preach, learn how to read and write and speak. And he's saying we're living in a culture that's taking that away from us. Then he says this. I thought this was great. Take a non-religious class on public speaking. Why does he say that? Because lots of people say, oh, the Spirit moved me. I couldn't prepare because I wanted to let the Holy Spirit move me. And so they get away with like these terrible lame duck bricks, brick, you know, basketball term like brick sermons that go up and hit the backboard and then ceiling and and so he says take a non-religious one where the toastmasters <laughs> take you to task and say that was just bad <laughs> nothing God about it <laughs> amen no one's with me on that one they're not moving this will take away the God talk associated with poor speaking. Number six, review and be true to the seven cardinal requisites of preaching. You want to know what the seven cardinal requisites of preaching are? This is something you never heard at Army before. All right. It's practical. It's kind of like pulling teeth. You got a pain, you got to take it out. And replace it with a nice new grill. Seven requisites. <laughs> Here it is. Number one. Number one. Number what? You sisters in the back, you taking notes? What are they called? The seven cardinal requisites. The seven requisites. And by the way, these have been around for a long time. A long time. Maybe even longer than Seventh-day Adventists. Okay? In terms of a denomination, 1863, what I'm talking about. These are the logic things that say this is a good sermon. Number one, textual fidelity. He, that being the preacher, could be she, this is the euphemism for humanity, he, is not entitled to preach his own insights or opinions or even his own convictions. What people want to come and hear is, was that the word of God? Right? That's what they want to hear. Uh, although, unfortunately today, some people do go, well, I just love that guy preaching because he does this or that. Forget it. The most important thing is the word. And every time it's not the word, I'm talking to myself here, it's a distraction. So he says these elements are objectively able to be tested. In other words, not something that can't be tested. You want to see, am I really true to the text? Um, then ask this question. A person should be able to point very rapidly and readily to where your sermon was from. Where was my sermon from yesterday? Psalms 85. And what was the text that we really talked about? Verse 6. Amen. That's more important than the fact that I preached it. Because the word is eternal. Amen. And all of you said the same thing, which means that was a good sermon. Not because I preached it, but because you remembered the text and you learned something. Okay. What was it that 
Elder Myers talked. I'm not. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Number two, unity is the main object of the sermon or the Bible study. That mean might mean or the phone conversation or the articulation of any kind. Is it clearly articulate? Articulate. <laughs> that was slaughtering the word articulate when you're trying to be articulate is problem. You said 10 minutes? 10 minutes? Are you serious? Could you add the five to that for me? There must be a main object that is clearly articulated around which the rest of the sermon is organized. Does that make sense? Here's the test. After you get through, ask 10 people what the sermon was about. And if at least eight of them tell you the same answer, you did a good job. But if they all told you different answers, you are from Babylon. <laughs> Number three, the evangelical tone. This is a great principle. Is justice balanced with mercy in the message? Is the message ultimately good news? Test. Ask the question. I get the sense that Miss Minister is for me. Or I get the sense that he's against me. Is his desire to see me saved? Or is his desire to see me lost? The end should be, he wants me to be saved. Amen. Yes or no? He might have had some bad things that really stepped on my toes, but he loves me. He wants me to do a good... Do I love you guys? Do I want you to be better communicators? I want you to be good communicators. Amen? Amen. Is this practical enough? Let me, all right. <laughs> the seat of the scornful back there is helping me out. <laughs> Instructiveness. Number, number four. Number four. The way walk in the valley of the shadow. Instructiveness. Is there teaching going on? If I am listening to a sermon, it's got to be something I'm learning or I'm checking out. I don't want to just like cliches. You got to fall on the rock and be broken. You know, I don't want that kind of stuff. I want some true teaching. Yes or not? You get through, you say, I learned something. Did you learn anything from yesterday's sermon? What did you learn? It was a chiasm, right? Ooh, it was going right to the middle. Boom! And Leviticus is not right in the center. It's chapter 16, Day of Atonement. And that the Psalms, they match the, the Pentateuch. There are five books in the Pentateuch, and there were five sections in the Psalms. So you not only read the Pentateuch, you sang the Pentateuch. Amen? Did you learn that yesterday, or you already know it? And Selamin, kick it up a notch. Amen? Go up the steps. My friends, you learned, right? And if you don't learn something, then forget it. What do I have? 20 minutes? It's time going up. Okay, instructiveness. Number, so the test, the test then, was I forced to rethink something as a result of the message? In other words, was I forced by that message to say, what, who am I? Where am I going? What's happening? Like right now you should be saying, am I a good preacher? Could I ever be one? You're rethinking, right? <laughs> I was when I read this. I was going, oh, my friends. <laughs> Let me go back to my closet. <laughs> Number five, movement. Now, this is not physical movement, because if it was, I would be a very good preacher. This is not physical movement. This is the sense of, was the sermon dynamic? Was it on the move? Was it a kind of, was there a certain well-ordered haste to the sermon? Well, we got to go somewhere. 
but not in a chaotic way, kind of like a race car driver goes to the finish line. He's not like just going off anywhere like a sprinkler. No, he's going towards the finish line. And we get a sense that car number three <laughs> is for me. Amen? Test. Can people remember what you said first at the end of your sermon? And if they can't, you said too much. And it probably was not connected. In other words, your fuselage was outside your plane. <laughs> For those of you who don't know what the fuselage is, the engine was outside the plane. In other words, you're a glider. <laughs> so, number six, the point. How many of you are getting the point of the seven cardinal requisites of preaching? The point. At the end of the message, has the overall point been impressed on the hearer? Whether or not he disagrees, whether or not he feels good or bad, if everybody comes out of the sermon mad, you know they got the point. <laughs> or glad, you know they got the point. In other words, test the effect of the sermon on those who believe it. Is it similar? It, did it encourage one? Did it, in, did it tend to encourage all? If it troubled one, did it trouble all? And for the same reason. In other words, when they come out, they go, man, God blessed. Or they come out, thank you, Pastor, the potluck's going to be good. Meaning there were better things that day than your sermon. The point. Number seven, how many of you are just almost concerned that this is almost over because the practical instruction has been so helpful? <laughs> By the way, there's not my points. These are the points of the rhetoricians. I'm just uh, heating them up a bit for you. It is. Why is Davy asking about the book? <laughs> okay, number seven. <laughs> Was the message organized, kind of related to the other? Did it fit together well? Was it gelatinous? Was it like jello? Jello has to be kind of loosely together, yet together enough to be jello. Can I have an amen out there? So maybe we shouldn't give amens for jello. But anyway, test. Could the hearers prepare notes and reproduce the outline of the message even without having get the DV from army? Could they, not the, could they tell you how the sermon progressed from one point to the next. Now, my friends, that was my talk today on preaching, but let me give you a little promotion for the next talk, which is the plenary you have to be at anyway. Usually they give you the plenary, then the talk afterwards, but in this particular case, something messed up. I don't know what exactly. Maybe it was my back. And... Let me tell you what I'm going to do now in the plenary. What I'm going to do is take, these were like pre-homiletical thoughts. In other words, you can learn all of these things largely by just reading. How many of you want to do some of those things? Have personal devotions and write out personal notes. Discipline yourself to be writing by hand. If you have a blog, make sure it's a logical blog, not a tweet street. But like, you know, uh, you know something that's deep and, and, and wide. All right? So, all of this stuff is, he says, in the culture we live, electronic media has, and I, I take responsibility. I mean, my last name is Macintosh. I probably have more impact on the problem than what I have to say about the solution. You know what I'm saying? Just because of my name. There's more iPods out there just because of the Macintosh thing. I wish I was related somewhat to the <laughs> pictures of dead presidents associated with that movement. However, I'm not. So what, I'm, what am I going to do in the plenary? What I'm going to do in the plenary is I'm going to now take 
what we've learned here and apply it to a text and go through how is it that you study and prepare a message, right? From ancient text to modern here, how, how do you do that? What are the tools? What are the resources? It's going to be so practical that you're going to say, please give us some inspiration. But I know you have to be there because it's the plenary. Can I have an amen? Yes. Brother? Brother? Brother, we have a controversy here because most of the people are saying seven. And you are saying something different. How many of you think we should have a special prayer for him right now? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> How many of you think I said seven? Raise your hands. Huh? All right. I don't know exactly what I messed up. If I mess something up, come back to Army next year and they'll invite me back for the two principles. But I'll get with you afterwards. Thank you for coming. When we come to the plenary, um, I'm going to be looking at the book of Timothy, one of the texts in Timothy, and I'll be taking it and kind of breaking it down and showing you the different elements of moving from reading a text to the other. That's what we're going to do. Okay? Let's pray together as we close. Father in heaven, we live in an age of, distract, of distractions and distractibility. And in the midst of that cacophony of confusion, you desire to bring clarity. And so you, in your love, send three angels who are speaking with a loud voice. And they're high and lifted up. Their voice of authority is transcendent. It is seen high above all humanity, and there'll be a group of people that look at that and come together in unity and clarity, and they have one point, and that is to seek and save the lost. And as they preach and as they teach, it's not like a twittering and a tweeting. It is sound, it is solid, it is simple, but not simplistic. And your word is preached to every kindred, nation, tongue, and people, all national differences are swept aside. All gang affiliations are set, swept aside. All family fractures are done away with. And there's a sweet unity that comes. And we want to be involved in that. And so we want to speak well. We want to hear well. We want to listen well from a pure heart. Bible says Amaziah did what was right, but not with a pure heart. We don't want to do any of these things to glorify ourselves, but to glorify you. And we thank you. We come in Christ's name. Amen.